0: Let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Standing firm in the Lord is something we all need to be thinking about right now, maybe more than ever. Paul wrote in Philippians 4.1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. We're going to read the text together, First Thessalonians chapter 3. Once you've got it, if you are able to stand with us, please do so. We're going to read the text, and then we'll come back and break it down. 1 Thessalonians 3, now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, 1 Thessalonians 3, 1, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be, st- be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you And our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come, verse 6, to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love. And that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live, here's our title, if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith, 11. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he, God, may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. You may be seated. Father, thank you so much that we have the living word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing deep, but also a light to our path. So excited to be witnessing baptisms, baby dedications, commitments to you publicly. It's so beautiful to see people wanting to stand firm in the Lord. And we don't do this by our own might, Father. We know we we stand strong in the Lord and in the strength of your might. It's not our power, it's your might. And what we're asking right now is that there be a fresh endowment of your power to stand firm in the days in which we live These are difficult, trying days, but they're also exciting days to stand. And having done everything to stand, Paul says, put on that armor. And so would you clothe us with the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? Would you encourage us with your living word? And may we love each other and be ambassadors of this living gospel to a world that so desperately needs to hear of the hope that is found in Jesus. We pray in his name. If you agree, would you say amen? Well, in 2001, I had a chance to travel to India and Nepal. It was a long plane flight, to say the least. It was uh, an interesting place to go and do missions work, and I went on about a two-week mission trip, a short-term missions trip, with a friend of mine, and we were in different places, and one of the places we ended up is in a hotel where a pastor's conference was being held, and I was one of several speakers, several pastors, trying to help Indian and, and Nepali pastors just navigate the times in which they lived. And it was a very tumultuous uh, situation there, illegal in many places to preach the gospel on the street. Many of the pastors needed theological training, but they also needed the practicals that are just like us. They needed to know how to navigate family life and the church and everything that was going on. And I had spoken in one of the sessions, and I was waiting uh, in the lobby of the hotel, and the Lord just kind of impressed this young man on my heart. He must have been no more than 19, 20 years old. And uh, I just felt like I needed to share the gospel with him, but I could not communicate with him, and I had no translator. And so I remember us just smiling at one another, and I was trying to, you know how you try to talk louder when you think someone can't understand you? Do you understand what I'm saying? (laughs) That wasn't helping. But anyway, finally, I was able to get a translator over, and I shared the gospel with this young man, and he got down on his knees in this hotel lobby and gave his life to Jesus Christ. It was so amazing. And that's one of several stories I could share with you. Another was we were literally sharing the gospel hut to hut in the rice fields in Nepal and uh, literally doing hut-to-hut evangelism. And this young brother and sister opened their hearts to Jesus. And I got a chance to pray with them. We'd snapped a photograph of them. And, you know, in the moment, you don't really realize that you may not ever see these people again this side of heaven. And I have not gone back to India and Nepal. It's been almost 20 years. I'm not sure I will ever be back. But it's an interesting thought to think about. People that you shared the gospel with what if I had a chance to go back now, 20 years later, what would I find? And part of my natural concern would be, I sure hope that these young people who opened their hearts to the gospel didn't walk away from the Christian faith, didn't get, you know, sucked back into maybe a a false religion or uh, another way. At the same time, on a positive note, imagine I had a chance to go back and uh, I saw them flourishing in the Lord. Let's say that They were leading churches and doing ministry. That's an exciting thought, isn't it? And the Bible teaches that one day on the other side, before the Lord on the day when he returns and ushers in his kingdom, we're going to rejoice with people that we impacted in the Lord. And it may be that we actually prayed with them to receive Jesus, and it may just be that we planted a seed, but they are going to be our joy and crown. We've been talking about the overall series in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Just take a peek again at the theme verses. It's just at the end of chapter 2 when Paul says, Who is our hope or joy, 219, or crown of exaltation or rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? You, the people that he won here in Thessalonica, you are our glory and joy. Remember that heaven rejoices when one sinner comes to repentance. And when we do baptisms here, I like to think that heaven is celebrating with us. And maybe heaven is even echoing some of the anthems that we sing in the church. In fact, there are Bible verses, and I won't take you there, that say that in some ways the angels look on and even participate in our worship. I don't fully understand how all of that works, But I will say it's a beautiful thought to think that heaven is engaged in what we're doing. And that's why we don't take the ministry of the church lightly. We don't take what we're doing here lightly. We have all kinds of weird things going on in the culture. But we're here because we've been mandated by our Lord to make disciples of all the nations. I would encourage you, if you're struggling a little bit with churches meeting and being open, that you would read a theological treatment of this subject by John MacArthur. It's on the Grace To You website, gty.org. Write it down if you're taking notes, gty.org. If you haven't read it already, it's a theological reason for remaining open, and it's not even based upon the First Amendment, although we can argue that it's based upon the authority of Christ being over his church. And here's the essential argument. The essential argument is when a government tries to take ecclesiastical authority over the church. When we talk about ecclesiastical authority, we're talking about the Greek word for church, ecclesia. Ecclesiastical has the idea of the governance of the church. The ones that govern the church under the authority of Christ are pastors and elders. When a government begins to intrude on that ecclesiastical authority telling us when we can meet, how many people can meet, how we can meet, whether we can sing, etc., etc. Everybody know where I'm going? This is when we have now crossed the theological line. And I think that this is a good treatment for your consideration. Now, you may not agree with everything that's there, and that's okay, but you should read it because you should read the Bible passages that are being kind of walked out there. Now, here we are We live in a time that's, uh, you know, maybe more challenging for us than we could remember. But this is nothing unique to church history or to the Bible or to even the Thessalonian church. In fact, if you just paid attention a little bit to a few of those verses, Paul said when he was in Thessalonica, just for a short time, he kept telling the Thessalonian Christians that this is what they could expect. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to what? They'll hate you. If they persecuted the master, they'll persecute their, his followers as well. Now, this is nothing that we revel in. And this is nothing that we necessarily, you know, we, we dance around or rejoice in, you know, when we hear persecution verses. But this has been the reality of the Christian church. And you may have heard that even in Portland right now, they are burning Bibles along with American flags. And so we see kind of just a lot of strange things going on in our culture. What are we to do? How should the church respond in days like this? Well, we need to be anchored in the Word of God, and we need to stand firm in the Lord. Amen? And I hope that you're going to stand firm. When I, was, when I was growing up, there was an old commercial about a toy named a Weeble. How, how many of you remember the Weeble? And the little chorus was... Weevils wobble, but they don't fall down. You remember that? Some of you are going, no, Pastor Michael, would you please move on? Well, the toy was kind of like this. You could do anything to it. You could push it, slug it, do whatever, but it always popped back up because of the way it was built. We need to be a little bit like weevils. (laughs) Maybe you should look at your brother or sister right now and say, be a weevil. No, don't, don't do it. Don't do it. Anyway. But the point is, is that Paul had these people on his heart, just like I could think of people in India and Nepal. And I could think of many other scenes where I had a one-time shot at sharing the gospel with somebody. Maybe I was traveling out of state. And I'm not sure I'm ever going to see that person again. But isn't it a cool thought to think that standing before the Lord, that person would say, I don't know if you remember, but you were traveling on business and you shared, you know, the gospel with me and I'm here and I'm part of your crown. That's pretty amazing. And I hope and pray that's what you're living for. That's what Paul was living for. That's what put his life into perspective. And Paul says, therefore, when we, some think the we is editorial, some think that it includes Silas, when we could endure no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. Now, if if the we is editorial, just Paul. You might remember that in Acts 17, Paul was alone, and he went to the place called the Areopagus, and that's when he took on the philosophers of his day. And he preached that brilliant sermon about how God is seen in creation, and how Christ was uh, crucified and resurrected in the very history in which they found themselves. And he preached this marvelous sermon, but he preached it apparently alone. He was willing to send Timothy, as we'll see in a moment, and Paul stood alone against the philosophers of his day. He felt, here's the language, the original language has the idea of he felt a bit abandoned. He felt a little bit alone and isolated. And a lot of people are feeling that way right now. You may be feeling that way. You're watching this right now, wherever you may be, and you might feel a little bit alone. And, and that's understandable. We're, we're in a weird time. People feel distant from one another. Many people are staying away from gatherings because of underlying concerns with health. And, and that's perfectly understandable. And that's what you should be doing. But it causes other issues, right? And we, we're hearing about now uh, suicide rates on the rise and abuse on the rise. And, and when Paul was in Athens, it's like he, he said, hey, I, I needed to be left alone alone so that I could make sure that the Thessalonians were okay. Temporary sacrifice, so that he could make sure that they were spiritually well. And so the word alone is emphatic here in the original language. Paul said goodbye to Timothy because he was so concerned about the Thessalonian believers. Jesus said these words, this is John 16, 31 through 33. Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is, co- is coming and already has come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone, says Jesus. Yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, John sixteen thirty three. that in me, Jesus says, you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Jesus even warned His disciples the night before He dies on the cross, you're all going to be scattered and you're going to leave me alone, but I'm not alone because my Father is with me. And the Bible says that God will never leave you, nor will He ever forsake you. And even if you feel alone right now, you're not alone because the Holy Spirit lives within you if you're a Christian, amen? And God isn't going anywhere. He's going to usher you all the way home into His heavenly kingdom. Paul's attitude is incredible. I wish my attitude would be more like this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12:15, "I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you the more, am I to be loved the less?" And Jesus says, "Greater love has no one than this: that a man lay down his life for his friends." This is what the Christian faith is about. This is what the Lord modeled. And as Paul did what he did, he was reflecting his good shepherd. See, Paul hated the church at one point. He tried to destroy the church. But once he had come to know the good shepherd, he wanted to shepherd God's people like Jesus would. And Jesus was now in heaven at the right hand of the Father. So now Paul was taking the baton. And he was then going to pass that baton to Timothy. And now we hold it. And I want you to think about that for a second now. We hold the baton. Don't drop it, brethren. Don't drop it. Don't, don't drop the baton because of pressure. Don't draw back when we should be stepping forward. We need wisdom, of course. We need a baptism of boldness. We need to get the gospel out. But this is no time to drop the baton. And we sent Timothy, our brother, verse 2. Brother is Adelphos in Greek. And God's fellow worker... In the gospel of Christ to strengthen, Paul sent Timothy. He couldn't go there. He was thwarted by Satan, we saw in the last chapter. And he sent Timothy to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. I am amazed what one person's faith can do to strengthen a body of believers. Amen? I've watched some people just in the last four or five months take a stand and they have strengthened many Christians. I would say Christians all over the world. Don't you think that you don't have an impact on people? When you stand, others feel emboldened to stand. They, they realize that you're flesh and blood just like them. That you're a human. That you have all the fears and all the concerns and all the what-ifs in your, in your thinking as well. But when they watch you stand, they say, hey, if he can stand, if she can stand, then I can stand. And that's what I've watched happen. And Timothy was a team player, verse 2. He was a minister. That's the Greek word diakonos. It's where we get the idea of a deacon. He was a servant, but he was a servant of Paul, a servant of Jesus ultimately, a servant of the gospel. It is the gospel of Christ because Christ is the gospel. It's about him. He is the embodiment of the gospel. And Paul wrote many sections about Timothy's uh, uh, faithfulness and he could trust Timothy to represent him Write down 1 Corinthians 4.17 when Paul says, For this reason, I've sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Philippians 2.22 and 23. You know Timothy's proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. I'm so excited to hear about men who are going out from this congregation planting other churches. Do you know that there's a living truth right now in Topeka, Kansas? There's a living truth in Prescott, Arizona. Got to wear boots to go there, but nonetheless, Prescott, we say hi. And there's other people who have gone out from this congregation who are praying right now. Maybe I should uh, establish a living truth in another state. And this excites me because it tells me that people are going out from here in Corona, California, and that's not to mention missionaries and other people who are going out with the gospel of Christ, who have found that there's uh, some training that they've received and they want to go out and minister the gospel. There's some people in this fellowship who I could, without hesitation, send on my behalf, and I know that they would preach the word of God accurately, and I know that they would represent the love of Christ beautifully. And that's part of what we're doing here is we're training the next generation to take the baton. And by the way, it's not always as formal as you might think. We're doing it right now. Every time you take in the word of God, every time you go to a Bible study, every time iron sharpens iron, you're getting more of a sense of mission, I hope and pray, to go to your workplace, to go to your neighborhood, to go to your family, to go to your sphere of influence and to represent Christ. So that no man, look at verse 3, may be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined or appointed for this. I want you to hold your place in 1 Thessalonians, turn all the way to 2 Chronicles 15. 2 Chronicles 15. I was watching Tony Evans be interviewed recently, and he mentioned this passage, 2 Chronicles 15. And I think it's very apropos for the time. And I, I'm going to read it to you. And I, having you turn there for encouragement purposes, Second Chronicles 15. But as you turn there, I want to remind you that when Jesus called Paul and he informed Ananias, who was doubtful about Saul, who becomes Paul, uh, about, you know, this man and his calling and so forth, the Lord says of Paul, he is my chosen instrument And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. At Saul's original call, Saul who became Paul, what was prophesied over him is that he was going to suffer. He was going to bear my name before kings and rulers and authorities, but I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I know suffering is not a fun thought or a fun word, but Christ suffered for us, and Paul was promised suffering And this is 2 Chronicles 15, verse 1. Now the Spirit of God came to Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa, that's the king, and said to him, listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, verse 2, the Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For many days Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But in their distress, for they turned to the Lord God of Israel, and they sought him, and he let them find him. In those times, verse 5 there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in, for many disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every kind of distress. But you, the prophet says to the king, be strong. Do not lose courage, for there is reward for your work. Now when Asa heard these words and the prophecy which Azariah the son of Oded, the prophet spoke, he took courage and removed the abominable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin, from the cities which he had captured in the hill country of Ephraim. He then restored the altar of the Lord, which was in front of the porch of the Lord. Turn back to the First Thessalonians chapter 3. See, God had troubled the nation and the cities round about to get the attention of his people. The Lord was behind it. The Lord was allowing it. And And the prophet said, if you'll turn back to God, he will turn to you. If you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. The Lord sits in heaven. His eyes go to and fro. The very next chapter in 2 Chronicles says to show himself strong, to strongly support those whose hearts are devoted to him. That's the question today. Is one of devotion? One of commitment? One of what do we really stand for? And Paul said, you know what? What we're going through, we've been destined for this. And When you're going through trouble, don't look to the wrong places, and don't listen to the wrong voices. There's a Danish proverb that says, he who builds according to every man's advice will have a crooked house. And as a pastor recently said, apparently a Masters of Divinity degree doesn't come with a spine these days. Just take a breath. That was really for me, not so much for you. (laughs) See, this is our time, brethren. Do you see it? And so Paul says, look, don't be surprised by this. Jesus promised us tribulation. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. I know you guys don't have that as your morning verse for your Monday. Hey, Here's a promise from Jesus. In this world, you will have trouble. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Going to see some trouble today. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I know. I know you want the more positive verses. I'm with you. But it is a promise. (laughs) And so Paul says, look, this is the way it works. Acts 14.21 says, And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, retracing some steps, Strengthening the souls of the disciples, Acts 14.22, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14.22. Now these may not be verses that you're always thinking about, but they're in your Bible. And there are many troubles that we face. A man uh, confined to bed because of lingering illness had on his sunlit windowsill a cocoon of a beautiful species of butterfly as nature took its course the butterfly began to struggle to emerge from the cocoon but it was long it was a long and hard battle and as the hours went by the struggling insect seemed to be to make almost no progress finally the human observer thinking that the powers that be had erred took a pair of scissors and snipped the opening larger the butterfly crawled out But that's all it ever did, crawl. You see, the pressure of the struggle was intended to push the colorful, life-giving juices back into the wings. But the man and his supposed mercy prevented this. The insect never was anything but a stunted abortion, says this writer. And instead of flying on a rainbow wings above the beautiful gardens, it was condemned to spend its brief life crawling in the dust. That gives me the idea that God knows what he's doing. In fact, that you can depend upon him even in the struggle, even when it's long and hard and seems almost meaningless. In chapter 5, Paul will write to the Thessalonians, God has not destined you for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not destined you for wrath, but he does know that the struggle will make you stronger. He does know that times like this can purify and strengthen his people. Do you sense that? I do. I sense a new depth of worship in your hearts and in your voices. I sense the church saying, you know what? Lord, help me to stand. Maybe, there's mo- Maybe you've been praying more desperate prayers than you've prayed ever in your life. Praise God if you're doing that. If the Garden of Gethsemane, so to speak, draws you closer to Jesus, if your Garden of Gethsemane draws you to the Lord for strength, amen, then that's good. For indeed, when we were with you four, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, this, he says a second time, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor should be in vain. I could endure it no longer. Paul says, I couldn't stand it any longer. Look at verse 5. I had to find out if you had stood or if you had given in to the tempter. Who's the tempter? Satan. He's mentioned in the previous chapter. Satan thwarted us. The tempter came into the Garden of Eden and tempted Eve, right? Did God really say? Tempted her with the forbidden fruit or the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in Matthew 4, and I got to take you there because I I want you to see how this works. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John hold your place in 1 Thessalonians. I want to show you where this tempter word is used. I think it's the only other place that I found it as Satan is described as the tempter, and it's in the life of Jesus. Jesus is driven up by the Spirit into the wilderness right after his baptism, right after the Father affirms him, right after, you could say, the beginning of his public ministry, so to speak. And after Jesus had fasted, Matthew 4.2, 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. That's an understatement, right? And the tempter, Matthew 4.3, came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones, become bread. In that area of the world, there's stones everywhere that can look like loaves of bread. And Jesus responds with the word of God and says, It is written, man shall not live on what? Bread alone, quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. When Jesus was tempted in his moment, of physical weakness turn back to first thessalonians jesus the master swordsman wielding the sword of the word of god responded to the tempter with the bible and do you know we have an insight here now on how satan works he tries to tempt new believers to fall away he tries to pluck the seed away of the word of god everybody understand One of the things that Satan, the tempter, tries to do, apparently one of the main things is steal away your faith. Get you to retreat. Get you to say, you know what, I don't think I'm a Christian anymore. I'm not going to do this Christian thing anymore. I'm not going to live a Christian life anymore. And the tempter dangles the carrot, so to speak. He might say something like this to Jesus. Yeah, where's your father right now? Why are you fasting? If you're the son of God, shouldn't you have a feast? You're a king. You're the king of kings and the Lord of lords, aren't you? God's holding out on you. Why do you have to suffer? Why do you have to fast? Why are you going to have to face a cross? Take the easy way. Just bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You don't have to go through this. Why would you have to suffer? The the embodiment of God on the planet. You You are the God, man. You are Emmanuel. Why? You ever hear that voice? Why are you going through this? Why is the line in the fast food place so long? You shouldn't have to suffer. Oh, do you hear us whining a little bit? I wanted me to in the line at the grocery store. And they're out of Kit Kats. I really wanted a Kit Kat. And <laughs> what? It's <laughs> a personal testimony right there. <laughs> but now that Timothy has come to us from you, we sent him to find out. And has brought us good news. This uh, phrase is usually for the preaching of the gospel. It's, uh, I think the only time it's used here for something else, maybe one other place in Revelation 10. He brought us, it was a veritable gospel of your faith and love and that you always, there's no cell phones, there's no email. How, how are you going to find out? Unless you send a messenger. And Timothy found out that you always think kindly of us. You haven't backed off. You long to see us as much as we long to see you. Glory. You haven't gone anywhere. In fact, you've been saying, man, we'd like to see Paul again. You know how that must have flooded Paul's heart with joy. And I told you that story at the outset of this sermon to to give you a word picture to say, hey, isn't it cool if you went back and were able to visit somebody 20 years later and found them flourishing and they said, "I, I was hoping for a day when I could see you again. You don't know what you mean to me. You led me to the living God. It's changed everything in my life. Not only my life, but my destiny. See, we downplay the power of the gospel. And Paul would say, like John, I have no greater joy than this, than to hear that my children walk in the truth. Or Paul might say, my crown's intact. Because these people were his crown. For this reason, brethren... In all our distress and affliction, we, we were comforted about you through your faith. You want to know what made the guy who wrote Philippians 4, 6, and 7 be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which pass, surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Do you think that he always lived that? No. Do you know what made Paul uptight and nervous? and even depressed at times in his life, was whether or not Christians were standing strong that he had preached the gospel to. Because he knew people came right behind him and tried to woo them away. He knew people tried to undermine his work wherever he went. He knew the enemy was always hot on his trail. That's what he worried about. He worried about the condition of the church. The writer of Proverbs says, Know well the condition of your flocks and herds. And Paul writes in Second. Uh, Corinthians and this is one other place I want to take you but I think you're going to see why go over to 2nd Corinthians so just a little bit back chapter 7 and I going to show you a few verses that I hope will comfort you especially if you're feeling a little bit down right now the man who wrote Philippians 4 6 and 7 be anxious for nothing was sometimes anxious isn't that a little strange the guy who wrote the Bible verse needed to heed his own verse Someone might say, might say to Paul, calm down. Paul, don't you know Philippians 4, 6, and 7? Be anxious for nothing. He might say, I wrote that. Don't use my own verses on me. <laughs> and we could be really good at having a life verse that we, we ain't living. You have one of those life verses you sign every card or email or text. And maybe it's, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Or maybe you have. Psalm 46, be still and know. And then you, you realize I'm not even living my verse. Help me, Lord. Second Corinthians 7 5 says, I do not speak to condemn you. Let me make sure I'm in the right place. Actually, verse 3. I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you, great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort, I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. For even when we came to Macedonia, 7, 5, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoiced even more. If you go back to 1 Thessalonians, we'll finish it. Paul was a bit at odds with the Corinthian church. He had to write some hard stuff and he thought maybe they didn't like him anymore. Maybe they believed the lies about him. And Titus came back and comforted Paul, who apparently was depressed, wondering how the Corinthians felt about him. Do you see how human our bibles are? Do you see how human our heroes are? Sometimes we get the notion that, you know, people who are in positions like this, even apostles and prophets never had a bad day, never had a worry, never were depressed, never were freaked out, never were troubled. Don't you believe that? And when you struggle with it, know that you're not alone. And that's when you're going to need a word from someone who can encourage you or uh, you're going to have a a message on the radio that you hear or a pastor will bring a timely word or a friend will send you a a Bible verse. Hey, I think this is for you. And you'll find strength in it. And that's, that's good. Don't think that you can be an island, brethren. And that you can do this Christian life all by yourself. Not even Paul could do that. For now, 8, 1 Thessalonians 3, we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. The idea of live there is a word from Zeo. It's a word for life. The news was life-giving. It was a breath of fresh air. You might say it this way, now we come alive because you're standing strong. You ever had someone speak a word to you and it's like you came alive? You know, this is what the gospel does. The gospel breathes life into us. We were dead in our sins, but now we are alive. He was dead. This son of mine was dead, but he's alive again. Luke 15, the, the story of the prodigal. He's alive. This is what the word of God does. This is what the good news does. This is what Emmanuel does. There's a prophecy in Isaiah 7. I won't take you there, but Isaiah has gone to meet King Ahaz and King Ahaz is being threatened by foreign armies and it's an overwhelming threat. And the prophet says, be calm, just look to the Lord, look to Emmanuel. God is with us, famous prophecy in Isaiah 7 about Emmanuel. And then he says these words. He says, if you will not believe, you surely will not last to King Ahaz. If you do not firm up, you will not be confirmed. Or the NIV renders Isaiah 7, 8 or 7, 9 this way. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God? Now that we've heard this, well, how can I begin to thank God on your account? How can I give thanks to God? There's a scholar I was reading this week who said he thinks this is from Psalm 116. Listen to it. Let it bless you. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. O Lord, surely I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of thy handmaid. Thou hast loosed my bonds. To thee I will offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. Psalm 116, 12 through 17. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits? You taking any stock lately of all your blessings? Found yourself maybe going something like this? You know... Man, I've taken a lot of things for granted the last 5, 10, 20 years of my life. I, I, take, I take a look around and go, wow, I'm a blessed person. What shall I? How, how can I express my thanks to the Lord, not only for that, but for my salvation? Well, Paul ends in what scholars say is one of two wish prayers, kind of a benediction. Uh, you'll see how it comes about here in the last verses. As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now that I've heard the news, I can breathe again, but I still know there's work to do. You need to be equipped more, Katertizo. You need to be made complete. You need to be furnished for action. There's more to do. There's more to learn. The equipping never stops. I'm glad you're standing strong, but you need to keep growing. And I'm hoping to get back to Thessalonica so I can teach you more and impart more truth to you. But now you have the letter. And now, may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct direct our way to you. I'm praying that we'll get back to you. And may the Lord cause you, and I want you to receive this for yourself, brethren. May the Lord cause you to increase and and abound in love for one another and for all men, just as we also do for you. So that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming, that's our word, parousia, of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. If you have an NIV, it says with all his holy ones. A couple final thoughts. F.F. Bruce says, being blameless in God's sight, is more important than being blameless by worldly standards. I told a group recently, I, I'm going to stand before a beam of seat and my Lord's going to say, he's going to judge how I cared for his flock, how I cared for his people. And what I desperately want to hear, and Lord willing I will, is well done, good and faithful servant. Amen? See, that will simplify a lot of things in your life. If you just fast forward, just it's not that long away, brethren. And that's if the Lord doesn't come in our lifetime, because if He comes in our lifetime, it'll be sped up even more. See, my prayer is that He will establish your hearts, you be strong, so that you'll be unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of Jesus. Jesus is coming with all his saints. See that word saints there? It's hagias in Greek. It could be holy ones, as in angels, or it could be the people of God. Here's what we do know Jesus, the Bible says, is coming, get this, with all of the angels. When Jesus comes, all the angels are coming with him. You say, how many angels are there? Gabriel and Michael. Oh no, many more. In fact, the Bible says there are myriads of myriads and the most believe the language means an uncountable number or perhaps millions and billions of angels are coming. You want to talk about a light show? I know Jesus is real shiny, but when the heavens open and Jesus comes in his glory and then all the angels who hang out in his glory come with him, you want to talk about a light show? You've been at a stadium, you've seen a light show, boom, 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 the... uh, Praise the Lord, I didn't even finish the thought and you are already clapping. (laughs) And and, y'all, boom, boom, boom. How many of you, (laughs) I've never seen so many fireworks that we saw on the 4th of July. There were people, my neighbors were shooting off things that were like military grade explosives. (laughs) Boom! Like shook our whole house. Glorious. Anyway, the Lord is coming with all his angels. Here's a few verses. Matthew 16, 27. Matthew 24, 31. Matthew 25, 31. We'll talk more about this in future studies. Jesus is coming with the armies of heaven. And the one thing that you're going to want to know on that day is that he's your king. Because you don't want to be his adversary on that day. Because just Jesus alone is enough. But all the angels coming with him, I think there's going to be a lot of people who are going to say on that day, oh, and a lot of people are going to be saying, oh yeah! I want to be in the oh yeah category. Praise the Lord. Father, thank you for your living word. We do look forward to a time when our king is coming. Our king is coming. Our king is coming. Oh, thank you, Lord. This, this uh, study in First Thessalonians, we've already run into this uh, a few times and there's much more to come. We're going to learn about the day of the Lord, the rapture. We're going to learn about so many things related to the second coming. And this is going to be an encouragement to comfort one another with these words. That we can live a life where when you come, we will just be rejoicing. And the reason we're going to be blameless is because you already paid for our sin at the cross. But what we are positionally, we want to be practically. Would you help us to live lives of holiness, Lord Help us to be more set apart, more sanctified. We understand our humanity. We've seen some of that in this message, but let us take comfort in your faithfulness. And if you're uh, watching us via live stream or you're here and you've not met Jesus, would you just keep your heart bowed for a moment and just say, Lord Jesus, thank you that you are coming again. Thank you that you came that first time to pay for my sin, to reveal the Lord, to die on a cross to defeat death through your resurrection. I place my trust in you, and you alone. Save me. Be my God, my King, my Lord, my friend. Show me the way. Show me your ways, Lord. Change me from the inside out. I want to be born again of your Holy Spirit. I repent of my sin and I receive you. If you're a prodigal and maybe you've been wandering and you've found some hard roads and some emptiness, he'd call you back home right now. Just say, Lord, I I come back home right now. I'm not gonna play any more games. I'm coming home right now. And Father, for anyone who's crying out to you and for your dear saints who are doing their best by your power and grace to stand firm, would you strengthen them, establish them, encourage them to keep fighting the good fight of faith. Give us wisdom in these days to know what we need to do, how we should do it. Help us to be ambassadors of the good news. Let us love those around us. And we just thank you for the beautiful morning that we've been able to share today together. We give you thanks in Christ Jesus' name. If you agree, would you say? Amen.